This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This is the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. At the beginning of each hour, we're talking with Neil King Jr., who's written the book called American Ramble about his walk from Washington, D.C. to New York City, and the side roads he went down to find what's left of America from revolutionary days, and also what's going on today. There are a lot of things that become themes for this walk. One of them is, and and almost a, a spiritual connection to this walk that people have that becomes a theme. Tell me about Ted, who you, again, meet early on. Yeah, so Ted was a, a middle-aged black guy that was just out in this um, neighborhood on, I think, the third day of the walk that was getting his garbage, big garbage can that he was about to roll in. And I came along, and we said hello, and he asked me what I was doing and where I was going, and I told him where I'd come from, where I was going. And he just immediately launched into this really extraordinary sermon where he kind of told me the backdrop of my walk, what it was that had been going on in the country, the George Floyd killing, the protests, the riots, the January 6th insurrection, you know, the disputed election, all of the things that had happened through that 2020 year of COVID. And he said, you know, your walk is a healing walk. It's a holy walk. You're out to tune yourself and in doing that to retune the country. And I I was like, Ted, come on, seriously, this is a lot of weight you're putting on me. And he's like, oh, I mean, you're going to be able to handle it. You're going to do it. He was quite serious about the whole thing. And and I, I it was such a great encounter just to meet somebody like that who, you know, in this kind of grandiose way, but in this beautiful way, kind of gives your walk, the thing that I was doing, uh, its own frame. You read up on people who in our history have have walked through America. The one which I love, the letters of Emmanuel Howitt, who began each letter with a, a summary, and uh, you list some of them in the book. Uh, dreadful roads, mosquitoes, rattlesnakes, miserable settlers, horse drops through fatigue, wretched condition and prospects of settlers, no grain but rye to be seen, deserted land, obliged to leave a tavern at night by vermin. 
you know, I, I was not sleeping in the woods. I wasn't, of course, you know, dragging a, a mule or a horse along with me or anything. I had very light backpack, one pair of shoes, super simple in terms of what I was actually carrying with me. But I love that whole Emmanuel Howitt thing. And all, I had really spent months steeping myself in the um, travel logs that so many of these people like he had written, particularly in the 1820s and 30s, where people had come to the United States, often from Europe, to really ask questions of would this strange, divided, multilingual place work? Would it come together? Did it? What kind of future did it have? And, you know, considering I walked out my door at the end of March of 2021, a lot of those questions were in the air then too. You know, we're very divided place now. There's a lot of kind of tribalism and distrust and and, you know, people looking askance at one another. One thing that you were able to do in your walk is have conversations with people of all political stripes, which doesn't sound like that big a deal 20, 30 years ago would not have been that big a deal. It is now. Yeah. And you know what was so important about all of that was um, this very basic notion of a common ground that I was literally on the same patch of ground with whomever it was I met. Oftentimes it was their ground, but while we were both there, it was our, our shared ground. And yeah, I met a lot of um, you know people whose politics were sharply different from mine. I was not out quizzing people on their politics, but people stuff would pop up. And you know, I met a number of people who, in quite literal ways, lived in other centuries, really. I met this you know, big bearded auctioneer guy in a barn in southern Pennsylvania who gave me a whole sort of sermon on how God was pulling his love away from America because we were turning away from God. And yet, despite the very different ways that we looked at the world, um, I came to really like this guy. His name was Ken. And he was an auctioneer, and he had all these amazing you know, tractors in the, in the um, barn that he was going to auction off that weekend. And he started to tell me about the tractors and their history. And it was just a great example of how you know, yeah, we could have become obsessed by what differences we had, but we immediately found something that we had in common, which was a shared fascination for this, you know, these machines around us. And um, it also turns out that my battery on my phone had died and I was literally lost. And Ken gave me directions to where I needed to go. And there was just something so basic and human about that encounter. And it, it was good evidence to me of how you know, we've allowed ourselves, I guess, because we've dropped so much of our interdependence and have now become so sort of independent with our cars and, you know, phones and technologies and whatever that we don't really need uh, one another, particularly strangers and the assistance that they can offer as much as we used to. And I think that's uh, unfortunate. One of the things that you get to walk by and contemplate, which we normally just drive by, are cemeteries. Uh, there's one in Lebanon. Pennsylvania. Tell us about that. So that was called the Lebanon Cemetery, which was in York, Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, across the country, this is a trend that's really going on now where African Americans, black citizens are finding that there, you know, were these all black cemeteries, not like they didn't know that they existed, but that have in many cases been neglected, overgrown, forgotten. And in the case of York, um, there's a whole project now underway with a bunch of the citizens there where they're tending to this cemetery and really kind of rediscovering um, the history of all these extraordinary people who had been buried there in the early 1900s. So these are, you know, first generation freed black citizens who had gone on to be, you know, politicians, civic leaders, 
um, you know, upstanding members of the York Society that had then been forgotten by generations after. And the woman who I met with there, Samantha Dorm, who was really leading a lot of this work, had also found that she had like 100 members of her family that were buried there, aunts, uncles, cousins, all kinds of people that she was not aware of. And so much of the walk was a kind of a meditation on what it is we remember, what it is we forget. And, you know, the forces of forgetfulness are, are strong. And, um, you know, the cemeteries are just a good example of how um, we try to memorialize things, but whether it be the forces of weather or the forces of our own kind of cultural amnesia, a lot of things get washed away or overgrown and neglected. And that was such a great symbol of that. You mentioned the Lebanon cemeteries in New York, Pennsylvania. And speaking of forgetting, that's an interesting story. When I first introduced you, I said you made this walk from Washington, our nation's capital, to New York City, our which was our first nation's capital. But I should have said our first nation's capital under the Constitution, where George Washington becomes president and all of that. Our first capital, really, is York under the Articles of Confederation, York, Pennsylvania, which is completely forgotten. Yeah, that was during the, you know, the phase during the uh, Revolutionary War, obviously, where they had had to flee Philadelphia and, um, you know, make their way, the Continental Congress, that was, across the um, Susquehanna. And then they settled for a while in York to push forward on the Articles of Confederation and, and some other things that they were doing there. So for that span of time, it didn't last terribly long, but it was, you know, one of the capitals of, of the United States that would be soon to be United States. Um, and yeah, it was a great um, part of the whole kind of ongoing remembering that I found when I arrived in New York, uh, which was also embodied by the really funny mayor there, Michael Helfrich, who lived in a house that he claims he was pretty sure that Thomas Paine had lived in, you know, one of the great intellectual founders of the country had written a famous crisis paper there. And there was a, so many tentacles of this kind of active remembering going on there that made the day I spent there so great. And it was, it was a great part of the book, too. You find that there's a large swath of America that has forgotten our history and, and really either isn't interested in it or doesn't have the time or whatever. Then you find these people who are intensely focused, and maybe not on all of our history, but particular parts of it, yeah, I call, I ended up calling these people memory keepers. And, um, you know, they are these kind of sentinels that are scattered around the country. And I think their numbers may actually be growing, despite the fact that um, our national amnesia also appears to be growing in other ways. Generally, the, I think the trend and the walk certainly pointed in that direction to me was towards um, this kind of preserving and saving and, and, and um, you know, putting out into the public arena in some fashion. Um, the things that matter like that. Not that it's a very perfect process because our, our, what it is we remember and who it is that we honor is still a very flawed uh, process. We're going to lead off our final hour of our Independence Day special with more conversation with Neil King Jr. about what he found as he went through his American ramble. That's going to come up next hour here on the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. Here's more of the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. 
Over the years on these July 4th specials, we've covered the lives and history of the leaders who created this country, but not that much about everyone else. The lives of those who lived in what was to become a new nation. So let's fix that. Liz Covart is a historian specializing in early American history, who is the founding director of Colonial Williamsburg Innovation Studios at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation and the host of a podcast about American history that is quite entertaining and informative called Ben Franklin's World. It's good to have you with us. How are you doing? Thank you so much, Gil. I'm doing well. Good. We see movies about colonial America, and let's face it, even the most historically accurate movies, as they are called, don't really paint a picture of what life was back then. Everybody has bright white teeth. Nobody has a stuffy nose. Nature's call goes unheard. Everyone sees perfectly well. Nobody walks in the walls. Everyone seems to have time for informed conversation while wearing clothes seemingly just back from the non-existent dry cleaner. What was life like? You know, Gil, it really depended on where you were living. Uh, if we look at the West Coast, right, um, and we look at what we today would know as California, Oregon, and Washington, um, you're just starting to see the Spanish creep up in the area. It's a highly indigenous space. Uh, and really, west of the Mississippi River is our very indigenous spaces. Um, so life there is going on as it had been. And again, you know, if you're an indigenous society, you may be encountering Spanish colonists coming up into New Mexico, into Texas, into California. In the um, west region, you know, between the, the West Coast and uh, the Mississippi River, it is pretty much all indigenous. There may be some fur traders that that come down into the area, but your life is going on uh, pretty much as it was um, before the American Revolution. Where things start to really get different is along that Mississippi River, along the eastern side. So we know that the war for American independence will start to be fought in the Illinois country in 1778 and, and carry on into the 1780s. We know that people in the Gulf Coast and Florida are also fighting this war and supplying different sides of the war, but they're very much involved. And then, of course, you have the people that we normally think about when we think about the war for independence, living from Maine um, down to about Florida along the East Coast. And there, you know, it depends on what's going on in the war as to what your life is like. And here at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, we are able to provide a glimpse into what everyday life was like during the American Revolution as we portray one community here in Virginia. It's a, it's a very diverse community with enslaved people, indigenous people, white people, um, and that our whole interpretation is set in the revolutionary era. Yeah, it, it's interesting, actually, because I've been and enjoyed Williamsburg many times over the years. I always get the feeling when I'm talking to somebody from Williamsburg that I'm on one end of the line and they're talking to me on the other end and churning butter at the same time. So let's talk about kind of daily life. You know, these days we talk about things as exceptions to our day, chores, honey-do lists and things like that. Um, chores were, were pretty much what you did with your waking hours for most people. Yeah. I mean, unsurprisingly, kind of like now, our whole existence, you know, the existence back then was about uh, sustenance and sustaining your, your life. Um, so if you're on a farm, you have farm animals to tend, you have crops to grow, you have crops to tend to, um, harvests to make. If you're a woman, you have a lot of work because you're taking care of the children. Um, a lot of families have a lot of children because, you know, there's no birth control. Uh, and so, you know, there are a lot of kids to take care of. Um, and there's also the house to keep. So there's there's a lot there. And then, of course, men might be out hunting or trading. A lot of this, of course, is going to vary as to whether you're living on a farm in a rural area or whether you're in a port city. And in that case, you could be a tradesman plying your blacksmith trade or being a silversmith. You could be a dock worker or a ship captain or a sailor. So, it, you know, 
daily life really depends on where you're living. Yeah, you mentioned no birth control, and that's actually an important part of life, an important part of uh, history until the last uh, last century or so. I, it, the only thing that stopped you from having a large family to provide for was a woman dying in childbirth, which happened often. I mean, now we're used to these 55-plus communities that you go into, and they're often mostly widows. Uh, then old age was mostly reserved for widowers. Yeah, old age, I mean, was a privilege, and it, again, would vary on where you live. Of course, in the Northeast, if we think of New England, we think of New York. Um, there are, are far fewer diseases because it gets cold up there um, than there are in southern colonies like Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina. Um, there's also fewer bugs. You know, There are periods of illness in Philadelphia and New York when you have yellow fever epidemics in the summer, but then those are pretty much contained. You know, And the interesting thing about women is not only are they dying in childbirth, um, but the, the number two source of death for women was actually cooking in the kitchen, because if you picture that open hearth with the fire going all the time, it wasn't that hard uh, for a, a skirt or a petticoat um, to catch fire. Yeah, I mean, a candlelit home of wood and thatch would eventually burn down and, and pretty much everything in a home in those days, except for, you know, the brick homes of very well-to-do people in major cities, pretty much everything in a home was flammable. It's true. Uh, if we think about beds, they're usually, you know, it's only the wealthy that can, could afford like a, a goose-filled down bed, you know, mattress and pillow. Other people are using hay. So farmers in those days, getting back to farming, because that was, you know, 90% probably of, of the colonies, even there, we're talking mainly about subsistence farmers, people producing enough to feed their families, nothing really left over to sell or trade, especially in the North. The plantations for tobacco and rice were, because of weather, mainly a Southern thing. But most of the farmers were not taking things to town. They were putting it on the table. It's true, but people were growing for the market. It's, you know, it wouldn't be on the scale that we have today with agribusiness, right? People would grow primarily to serve their interests at home. But especially when you get into what was then the bed basket, the bed basket, uh, basket of, of North America, you're talking about a place like Pennsylvania, uh, Maryland. Those places have favorable growing seasons. And away from the tidewater and the, and the coastal regions, you're really talking about farmland. So they are growing wheat for an external market and making money doing it. Uh, New England, the soil is really rocky, so they are growing crops for their homes. There would have been a little bit of surplus, but they're also doing a lot of dairying. Uh, so a lot of farm animals that they're tending there and doing a lot of dairying. Children worked. Uh, this was pretty much true everywhere before Charles Dickens kind of invented the whole idea of childhood and spread it around the world. But uh, if, if you were a kid, uh, there wasn't that much of a kid life after a few years. No, it's true. Kids grew up faster than we typically think of today. If your family had circumstances, and again, we're just really talking about white people here. Uh, if your family had some circumstances, you might uh, go to a school for a few years. You might learn reading, writing, arithmetic. Um, and that's if you're a boy. If you're a girl, then you would maybe learn to read, likely learn to read because that's in Protestant theology. And most of British North America that we're talking about is Protestant, um, but it may have been unlikely for you to learn to write unless your mother could write because your mother is primarily the one teaching you at home. Uh, but others were, most kids were homeschooled. They learned by doing. And, um, you know, if you're enslaved, then, you know, you're growing up even faster as a child because you have a lot of chores and work um, that you're, you're going to be forced to do from probably the ages of four or five on up. Yeah. And, and that was an important thing. Literacy for women was not a thing. It was really not a thing anywhere. I mean, Shakespeare, who even wrote some very literate parts for women, uh, 
we know very little about him, but we've seen documents signed by a wife and daughter, and they just wrote an X. I mean, this, you know, the wife and daughter of a man whose name and literacy go together. So women were really kept out of it. How literate were early Americans? I mean, other than a Bible, how easy, especially outside the cities, was it even to get a hold of books or to afford them? This is going to be a highly regional question. So New England had the most newspapers of any uh, section of the country uh, or what would become the United States. And so literacy rates are fairly high there. But again, um, we're not always talking about reading and writing. We're often talking about reading um, in the South, in places like here in Virginia, you would have had press. So there was a newspaper, the Virginia Gazette. You can, in fact, come here and see that it, uh, how it was printed. Um, so there was access to some news. But the more farther away you are from port cities, the longer it takes news to circulate to you uh, and the less reading material you have. Um, you know, to give you an example, Benjamin Franklin, he talks about in his autobiography how he used to borrow books from his brother, James Franklin, who was also a newspaper printer. Um, and when he moves to Philadelphia, he's often borrowing books from from other printers and uh, his friends that have them to read. So not everybody had access to a lot of reading materials. And of course, Franklin would go on to be very successful and, and build an amazing library. Uh, but that that was an exception rather than the norm. In terms of life, when America was founded, the average lifespan was 35 I mean, think about that. That means after we become a nation, when you're old enough to run for president, you're actually dying, I mean, you know, on average, obviously, many exceptions, again, depending on where you lived and and uh, whether or not there was an epidemic going on and all of that. But um, life was, for the most part, short. Yeah, I didn't know that statistics. And I'm 42 now. So I'm thinking I'm, I'm already dead or I'm a really old lady. <laughs> And you would have been considered, and I would have been considered, uh, frankly, something that popped out of a time capsule. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of what we need to think about, again, when we're speaking of, of white families in particular with land and property, you are thinking about building an inheritance for your children um, and that they can have. I know in New England and really elsewhere, you have a lot of sons waiting for their fathers to die so that they can inherit. Um, and you know, a lot of the elder care, like today you mentioned earlier, we have these 55 and older retirement communities. And your retirement community was a community you lived in, and hopefully your family was taking care of you. Otherwise, you might have to rely on something like the almshouse. We have more to talk about early America with Liz Covart coming up on the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. We're back with more of the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross, and we continue our conversation with Liz Kovar. She is the founding director of Colonial Williamsburg Innovation Studios at Colonial Williamsburg Foundation and the host of a podcast about American history, Ben Franklin's World. Did people see themselves as members of a nation or even a state or even a colonial state? That's such an interesting question, Gil. And you can see in the first histories written by Mercy Otis Warren, um, I believe his name is um, David Preston um, in South Carolina. If not, there is a historian in South Carolina who was a doctor and wrote one of the first histories of the United States, you know, just as the Constitution is passing. And they both really work to paint a national picture. We survived the revolution. We, we were able to affect a new government um, and build a nation for us. And they use the revolution as the common bond to unite all Americans. But 
it's a highly regional thing. People would think of themselves in terms of the villages or towns that they're from, more of the state that they were from, the new state they were from, and sometimes regions. So like the the four New England colonies at the time, they like to band together. Uh, and so New England can be a def- identifiable region. New York kind of stands on its own. And then there, you know, you have the mid-Atlantic states of Maryland, uh, of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware, and then you come south from Maryland. Um, and so you have, you know, like the Chesapeake region and then the deep south region. So there's a lot of cultural differences and regional differences going on. And because, you know, living conditions were similar but different, because again, those short growing seasons in the Northeast and the long, you know, growing seasons that allow you to to grow cash crops in, in the South, they impact people uh, and their views of the nation and whether we should have an institution like slavery. There were founders like John Dickinson who were questioning whether slavery should exist, uh, exist, given that we, you know, we we as Americans fought a, a war for independence to get away from tyranny and to get our freedom and liberty. So, what does freedom and liberty mean in this new American context? So, Americans were far from united. They were also confused after the revolution because they had been British and they were proud to be British. You have to keep in mind during the Seven Years' War, which takes place in North America, roughly between 1754 and 1763. That was a large global war for empire. It didn't just take place in North America. It takes place in Europe as well and around the world. And England came out, Great Britain came out the huge winner of that war. They they get territories in India and Asia. They get territories in the Caribbean. There's 26 colonies actually in North America during the time of the American Revolution just before. Uh, So Americans reveled and the fact that they were British at the time. And so now all of a sudden they've declared their independence and they've won their war for independence. And it's like, okay, so what is an American exactly? If we're not British, who are we? And so you will see there's a lot of scholars who write about uh, the creation of American identities and trying to figure out what that American culture, that American politics, that American economics, and those American values are in the what we would call the early republic. Colonists you know, very religious, but believed a lot in the supernatural and not just in Salem. Yeah, it's true. I I think today we think of science. Science tells us a lot about the biology of things and how things like germs work and how they can make us sick. There was no germ theory in the 18th century or early 19th century. So people had their best guesses as to what would cause illness or bad things to happen, you know. And you reference the Salem witch trial, which happens in the 1690s. Uh, in Salem, Massachusetts, well, you have a whole lot of New England preachers up there in the 17th century, in the early 18th century saying, this hurricane hit us. And so we must be living immoral lives and that it is our fault that this is punishment um, for being, you know, vain or whatever the preacher is going to list as their fault. Um, You know, and we need to improve or we're going to be visited upon by natural disasters. So I think then, uh, as now, religion is a, a way for people to seek answers and the unknowable and what we don't know um, about ourselves, as well as to have faith in all the positive things that can, religion can bring to people's lives. What did people do for fun in those days with, with, with all the chores, with all the work, with the health problems and everything else? When people did have a break or something, what did they do for fun? You know, people did have fun in early America. We know that they played games. Uh, in fact, the Raleigh Tavern here at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation is bringing back the billiards table. Uh, I think it's actually being installed as we speak. So when you come and visit, you can see it. So there were card games, there were billiard games, um, some there were sport, uh, there was horse racing, uh, things like that. Um, we know that a lot of enslaved people, when they had time, you know, they might 
um, put a fire out there and they'd dance and they'd sing as well as tend to tend to the the gardens and stuff that they took pride and joy in and needed for their own sustenance. Uh, so all sorts of people were were engaging in, in pastimes. And I think a lot of it has you know, to do with spending time with family and enjoying that and spending time with their communities and enjoying that as well. Well, we've learned a lot. And again, I want to underline that Liz Covert has a podcast about American history, which is fascinating. So if you're into any of this, there's a lot more to learn. It's called Ben Franklin's World. Liz is the founding director of Colonial Williamsburg Innovation Studios at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. Liz, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up, more of the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. This is the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. When America declared independence from Great Britain, our declaration enumerated 27 charges specifically against England's King George III. Thomas Paine called the king of the royal brute, and people said he was a cruel villain. How much of this was true, and how much was the king to blame when under a constitutional monarchy really only had so much power to begin with? Historian Andrew Roberts has written The Last King of America, The Misunderstood Reign of King George III. Andrew, welcome. How are you? Thank you very much indeed, uh, Gail, on top form. What was the relationship between King George III and colonial leaders like Ben Franklin? I mean, at one point, it sounds like Franklin trusted the king enough to settle for something where the king was sovereign, but parliament was not, rather than complete independence, you know, something like maybe the Commonwealth nations have now. What was that relationship like? Um, yes, you're right, that uh, there were several um, staging posts between a complete British domination and complete American independence that uh, had history gone a different way, had Ben Franklin. Franklin's views been accepted earlier on, um, might have meant that there was some form of of, uh, political condominium between um, Britain and America. But of course, as we we know, um, in terms of, uh, especially in in great moments of uh, strife and so on, the extremes uh, tend to um, get followed rather than the moderates. I mean, it sounds like American leaders were initially okay with King George. It was Parliament they hated, but any deal to cut out Parliament, of course, would violate the British Constitution. That's right. And and actually, earlier on in the um, American War of Independence, they, the American leaders spoke of the parliamentary army and parliament's army rather than the royal army, which of course it was, and the king's army. So there was a, uh, a sense that up until July 1776, at least, you could differentiate between the two. He has problems at home. Uh, He was under political pressure at home about American freedom and more, especially from a character not that well known here in America, John Wilkes. In fact, I think the only reason anybody knows his name here is he's the man for whom John Wilkes Booth was named. Can you tell me about him and his relationship to the king? What was going on in this period? Yes, John Wilkes was a radical journalist. He um, was somebody who um, very much wanted to curb any royal power uh, that was left to the king. There were vestigial royal royal powers. Um, it was in no sense, you know, Britain wasn't in any sense a parliamentary democracy in the way that we see it today. And John Wilkes was in the forefront of trying to sort of clip the royal wings. He was also a great advocate for American, um, uh, greater American sovereignty. 
in the United States itself. And so he was considered quite a, uh, a dangerous radical. He had a great sense of humor. He was a uh, larger than life character and, um, and he caused the uh, government any amount of trouble. Uh, later in his life, he became very conservative, in fact, and, and wound up being a, uh, somebody who defended the, uh, the Bank of England during the um, Gordon riots. So King George is, is not a king who is completely secure the way we think of, you know, kings and his position. In fact, when he was a kid, there was a war to overthrow his family, which is mainly known about here in the United States by romance novel uh, novel lovers because it's portrayed in the books and TV show Outlander. But <laughs> there was a move to overthrow his family. And in fact, the Hanover's even considered just giving up and leaving the country altogether. That's right. Yes. The Jacobite uprising of 17... 17- uh, 45 came very close uh, to actually overthrowing the Hanoverians. They'd only been on the throne since 1714 anyway. Um, George III was only seven years old at the time that it uh, happened, so he wasn't uh, directly involved. But of course, as he grew up, he'd have been hearing about these um, these tales. The Jacobites got to Derby, which is only 120 miles away from uh, from London. George wasn't also necessarily that popular with people. I mean, people actually threw fruit at him and shouted things like America forever. Yes, that's right. Um, the the war was not popular because the Americans were seen as our cousins. They were, uh, and in, in many cases, they were actual cousins. And so it wasn't something that it was very easy to drum up uh, support for. Um, people didn't want to join the army in order to go off and fight uh, against the Americans until um after the battle of saratoga when the um french joined in and when the french once the french had allied themselves with america um then uh, then people were very willing to to join up and and fight the french but they didn't much like fighting the americans so now it's an all out war part of a larger war something that again is is kind of lost to our american history there's a much larger war going on with britain which affects the way that it fights and it's all interesting because Compared to other colonies and certainly other kings, we're not doing that badly. As you pointed out earlier, we start our own Continental Congress. Britain really does nothing to stop that. We weren't taxed as horribly as we were taught in school. In fact, compared to citizens of Britain itself, we got off rather lightly. Seeing that, how confused was King George by the demand for independence? Because that was something, if I may sound British for a moment, uh, people might have said, well, that just isn't done. <laughs> well, his his first thought, really, and uh, and most profound thought, and this was, this was uh, reflected also and echoed in the House of Commons and the House of Lords, um, was of a, a sense of ingratitude that the you, that the Americans had um, been essentially in the French and Indian Wars protected and huge amounts of money spent on the war in order to make sure that the French didn't uh, take over the um, British colonies in America, in North America. And, um, and instead of cleaving to the British crown, um, only a few years after the victory of 1763, only 11 years later, um, people are, um, you know, the Boston Tea Party is taking place, for example, the Stamp Act Congress of 1765. The, there was a real sense here in, in Britain that um, uh, the Americans had shown no gratitude for the 
um, help that they'd been given in the French and Indian wars, and in, which which were, as I say, tremendously expensive and needed things like the Stamp Act to try to uh, to balance the books, and that therefore it was um, it was. Uh, you know, unfair essentially for the Americans to revolt. It's uh, it seems ridiculous nowadays. Obviously, after a quarter of a millennium, uh, almost of American independence, to think that people could have thought that way. But um, that's one of the glories of history. You mentioned that the British only had about, on average, thirty five thousand soldiers here, and the reason for that is they were fighting on all these different fronts. But but you wonder if somebody in London might not have gone. You know what? Even if we win the battles, which they won most of, we could never hold that big a territory with 35,000 soldiers. That's smaller than the present New York City Police Department. And you're talking about holding the entire East Coast. And of course, as America started to push toward the West, even if they won, making air quotes here on scene on the radio, the war, how did they expect to actually hold on? Well, they expected it to be done through the loyalists. This is a, an area of um, history which doesn't um, get, I think, as much um, concentration as it ought to. There were a large body of Americans. Some historians put it at uh, between a quarter and a third of Americans who actually supported the king. And if the uh, royal armies had, uh, the British army had uh, defeated General Washington, then there were two or three occasions when it came close. Um, they they believed at the time that the um, that the loyalists would then get more and more uh, support and uh, and therefore America would not have to be held down in a kind of guerrilla campaign that you get in the Viet Cong, for example. So it's a totally different kind of um, uh, of struggle, really, for the hearts and minds of Americans. We're going to continue our conversation with Andrew Roberts about King George III just ahead here on the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. Here's more of the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross, and I'm talking with Andrew Roberts, the author of The Last King of America, The Misunderstood Reign of George III, the king from whom we wanted and got our independence. George is initially not that disliked by Americans compared to Parliament, and yet the Declaration of Independence makes King George sound pretty horrible. 27 charges against him in the Declaration. Yes, well, it's the it's the sort of political equivalent, essentially, of common sense, that pamphlet of uh, Thomas Paine that we were talking about earlier. The um, Now, common sense didn't um, really come up with any uh, genuine uh, criticisms of uh, of George III that could be substantiated. And in only two of the 27 uh, criticisms of George III in the Declaration of Independence was there much sort of meat on the bones, frankly. But those two, the 14th, uh, which was about taxation, and the 21st, I think it was, which is about um, ruling from um, uh, Westminster, ultimately those two do justify the entire American Revolution. You know, that is what um, being independent and sovereign country is all about. So uh, yes, there are lots of other ones, uh, which is fr- were frankly sort of legal padding by uh, Thomas Jefferson, who was trying to create as many um, sources of um, of disaffection as possible. But um, but lots of them 
first of all, date back to many few, many uh, previous kings, going back to Elizabeth I. Um, there's a lot of ex post facto rationalization. There's a lot of um, just sheer sort of packing. And there's one point where um, George III's accused of taking Americans across the oceans for trial. Not a single American was taken across any ocean uh, for trial by George III at all. So final thought, Andrew, if we're going to play this game, if things had been different, if an accommodation had been reached with the king by the Americans, if this doesn't become a world war where the French and Spanish and others come in on the side of America against Britain and gets Britain's back up in all of this, if the if America stays a part of Britain, history would have changed in some remarkable ways. Well, it would have been a reverse takeover, essentially. I mean, you would have uh, inherited the British Empire because by the 19th century, American uh, know-how and raw materials and uh, sheer size and economic power was such that um, uh, you would have been the senior partner in the whole um, in the whole business, especially if we'd had a unitary parliament that was based on uh, on representation. If we had managed to stay together, then you can be certain that you would not have had a First World War. There's no way that um, the Kaiser could have taken on America and Britain at the same time in 1914. Without a First World War, there wouldn't have been a Second World War, there wouldn't have been a Holocaust, there wouldn't have been a, a Cold War. So so actually, I think the world would have been a much happier and better place, but uh, clearly that's in the realm of, uh, of counterfactual what-if history rather than, uh, rather than genuine history. Right, absolutely. But it's fun to think about. Andrew Roberts has written a book that really changes our views of just what was going on when our nation was created, The Last King of America, The Misunderstood Reign of King George III. Andrew, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it, Gil. This is the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.